Hello, and welcome to Nutmegged, a Premier League podcast. Every week, we break down the latest matches, cover off-field drama, and inevitably discuss VAR. I'm Jackie. And I'm Josh. If you enjoy our show, subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter at NutmeggedPod or our website, nutmeggedpodcast.com. Please rate and review the show on your preferred platform to help other listeners find us. Hi, and thanks for joining us for our Match Day 4 review episode. That was a pretty unexpected set of fixtures this week, Jackie. <laughs> the Premier League is drunk. Completely drunk. I don't know what's happening. Wasted. I'm not even really sure where to begin. I think we should probably skip what we usually do instead of going fixture by fixture and just start with the bigger stories. Yes. So I don't know if anyone listening missed this news, but <laughs> Aston Villa beat Liverpool 7-2. to 7-2. to two. That is not <laughs> something you hear often. No, the last time that Liverpool conceded... Seven goals was 1963 or something like that. It's been a while. And I don't think anybody expected that outcome. <laughs> I don't even think Aston Villa expected that outcome. Yeah, that was uh, incredible. It was after the Spurs-United game, which we'll talk on and talk about in a bit. Um, I don't think I expected another game to be a bigger deal. And then Aston Villa did that to Liverpool. So they were fantastic. Pretty much all over the field. Every player did a great job. Dean Smith did a great job. Their game plan worked perfectly. And Liverpool were pretty much to a man, maybe except Mo Salah, terrible. So it was just quite the game. Now, I, I want to say six of the seven goals, and maybe I'm actually being conservative. I think you could argue that seven of the seven goals came down the left side of the field Aston Villa was very clearly targeting the space between Gomez and Trent Alexander-Arnold, as you pointed out. Talk about that strategy. Liverpool's right side, yeah. Yes, sorry. Liverpool's right mm-hmm. side, the left side of the field when Aston Villa were attacking. Yes. Um, yeah, I think it was a conscious plan from Dean Smith, and I think it worked perfectly. Liverpool play a ridiculously high line defensively, looking to catch out teams and catch them offside while pressuring them back further and further into their own half. That pressure wasn't quite there from the attackers, and Villa were able to just send long balls over the top to that kind of right-hand side of Liverpool's defense. And they were really targeting the space behind Alexander-Arnold at right back, who gets forward very far, and beyond Gomez, who would have to kind of come out from central defense and try to cover. He's not incredibly fast. He's fast, but he's not incredibly fast, and he's probably not their strongest defender. Um, And Villa just targeted that space and exploited it perfectly. Yeah. Liverpool came out of the restart a little bit weaker defensively. You know, you could probably put that down to the fact that they had pretty much already won the league. Yeah. Maybe it was was more to do do with that than anything else. But why wasn't this as obvious last year? They've had a couple of games now where teams are now very clearly targeting that area yeah I think it's easier said than done it's one thing to say you're going to target that area and plan to but Liverpool tep- typically press really really high and really fast and really hard so if you're planning to send a ball over past Alexander-Arnold and Gomez and Sadio Mane is running at you and pressuring you 
A, you might not even get a, get that pass off, or B, you might panic and send a short one elsewhere, or even back to your keeper just to keep the ball. So it's it's a lot harder to just execute that plan. Liverpool didn't have that pressure. Now Mane is a big part of that, but Jota, Salah, and Firmino should have been able to press from the front much more than they did. They looked a bit sluggish. And when you don't press from the front, then the midfield is pushing up, also trying to kind of press, and the defense is pushed up in that really high line. They can just kind of send the ball over, get the defenders running back towards their own goal, and then Villa could take advantage really easily. Yeah, and and you touched on Mane. He was obviously not involved in this game because he tested positive for COVID. Yeah. Aston Villa have Ross Barkley mm-hmm. now on loan from Chelsea for the season. This was his yeah. first game. He went straight into the lineup. Talk about the impacts that you know, missing or, or new players had on this game. Yeah, so from a Liverpool perspective, they're missing Mane. They're missing um, Thiago, who also has tested positive for COVID. But perhaps most importantly, they're missing Allison in goal, who is one of the best goalies in the world, gives them a lot of stability, and is just better than Adrian, his backup. Um, Adrian did pretty well when Allison was out last season, but he definitely has more capacity for errors, especially when playing out from the back. And four minutes in, he was tried to play out, gave the ball directly to Jack Grealish, who crossed it to Ollie Watkins, and Villa had scored after four minutes. So while that is not the entire reason Liverpool collapsed, I don't think you can say Adrian was at fault for any of the other goals. Um, he definitely doesn't inspire the same confidence in the defense that Allison does. He also doesn't come out quite as quickly or as far as Allison does. So at times when Liverpool play their high line, someone sends a ball over the top, Allison will come out pretty far and just sweep that up before the attackers can even get to it. Adrian stayed closer to his goal, which gave Grealish, Barkley, Watkins space to run at him and basically have you know one-on-ones with him. Watkins actually missed one and Grealish scored one, so they had so many chances. I don't even think I'm exaggerating when I say that Villa could have scored 12. Yeah, and, and it was a timely breakout for Watkins. You know, People had been waiting for him to score. He hadn't scored in the Premier League yet. He was, I think, a $28 million transfer, a mm-hmm. uh, million pounds, sorry, transfer. From Brentford, yeah. Um, from Brentford, people were worried about whether he was capable of stepping up, and yeah. he did in a big game. So Yeah, he did really well. He, I think, has played well all season without scoring it, kind of like Timo Werner, where it just seemed like he needed kind of one goal to kind of break out. I'm hoping the same for Werner. Um, and he scored a perfect hat trick in the first half of this game, left foot, right foot, header. He was everywhere. He ran through you know the channels really well, pulled Van Dyke kind of out of position, held up the ball well when Villa were under a little bit of pressure. So he it was basically a perfect performance, and he actually missed a couple, hit the crossbar, could have scored five. Um, Ross Barkley, I thought, was fantastic. He showed what he can do. He's been a little frustrating at Chelsea just because he has kind of flashes of looking amazing and then will miss a wide-open goal from six yards out. Um and he did that as well. He probably could have yeah. had a hat trick, but he did a really great job just driving forward with the ball, exploiting space, crossing into that kind of channel on the right side of Liverpool's defense. Um, took his goal well, combined with Grealish really well. So I think he's going to be a great addition for them. And then Grealish is kind of their main man. He's been fantastic, and this is one of his best games yet. He had three assists and two goals. Um, yeah, it's a it's a high points tally for one single player. And I think Villa have done 
fantastic business, kind of quietly. It went under the radar a bit this summer, but they signed Martinez, the goalie, Cash, right back, Watkins, Barkley. Um, and I think they just done a really, really good job. So Yeah, they, they definitely don't look like a team that was one point no. shy of relegation just a couple of months ago. Nope, I think they will be safe this year and upset quite a lot of teams yeah. i think they're i think dean smith's done a fantastic job but i'm happy for him because i really like him yeah it's fun to watch them and obviously john terry former chelsea legend also <laughs> on that coaching yes. staff but it was interesting as you pointed out aston villa were kind of just unrelenting in that mm-hmm. game uh, i think jürgen klopp said or maybe it was some of the liverpool players i, I heard somewhere uh, that they were down at 4-1 at halftime and Liverpool came into the second half still thinking they could win the game. Which I kind of did too. If Liverpool, if you, You've seen Liverpool turn things around that way with their kind of unrelenting pressure. Not a time. No. Well, it'll be fun and let's move on because you know this game's been turned inside out and upside down. I'm not sure we have much more to add to it. But it's been really fun so far seeing the variety of teams that are doing well just four or five or four weeks in yeah last year it was much more linear there were a couple of teams liverpool one of them they were really fun to watch mm-hmm. this, but they were way out in front very right. early yeah this year it's much more spread out so in line with that theme let's move on to man united spurs 6-1 victory for tottenham <laughs> again a scoreline i don't think anybody was expecting no, definitely not. Um, Maybe Jose, because he took full credit for it. I mean, if, if Jose's ever going to be arrogant, I guess he earned it yesterday. Credit to him. And before we get into that, it's I think it's important to mention that United did have a red card 28 minutes in, and so they yes. were a man down for a lot of the game. Yeah. But I also think it's important to mention that Tottenham were winning by that point and looked more dominant. I think both things are important to note. Anthony Martial was sent off at around 28 minutes. He stupidly retaliated after Eric Lamella elbowed him in the throat at a corner. Lamella is a devious little player. He has previous for this. Um, I personally think Anthony Taylor, my least favorite ref in the league, um, should have either sent off both or neither of them. Martial was definitely stupid for retaliating, and Lamella made the most of it by falling to the ground and clutching his face. But VAR should have been able to see that they both, you know, were involved yeah, and, and Lamella to not sound like a child, but Lamella started it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think it was just stupid to only send one of them off. But yeah. I mean, it, it was egregious. If you watch the replay, I don't know if there's a rule that I misinterpreted, but Anthony Martial, I have to say, I guess hit Lamella. It almost looked like he touched Lamella. <laughs> And it was a pretty weak little slap. Right, and, and he kind of grabbed his own throat for a second or two and then decided to sit it down. Fell to he, his he knees. Really, he didn't really fall so much as sit down <laughs> and then kind of put his hand up and complain. So. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing Jose would have coached and Jose loves. So it's I don't personally like it, but it was effective. It got you know Martial sent off. That said, I think Spurs would have won this game anyway, and I want to give them credit for playing well. Um Sun was fantastic. Kane was very good. They looked like they could score every time they went forward. Aurier had a great performance. Um, and Dombele looked very good in the middle. But United, oh my God. <laughs> I don't want to 
kick them when they're down because they've had a kind of uh, rough rough weekend. Go on. Well, it's just I just their defense. Dear God, I as a Chelsea fan can recognize a poor defense when <laughs> I see one. Um, and that was just atrocious. Harry Maguire was awful. Directly at fault for one or two of them. I that was first say one. Directly responsible for at least a couple of goals. The first one, he headed it back towards his own goal twice and then tackled Luke Shaw, his own teammate, mm-hmm. as he tried to clear the ball. Eric Bailly was atrocious. Luke Shaw, I think, forgot he was supposed to play left back and kept drifting into the middle, leaving acres of space open for Spurs on the side. Um, Juan Basako was sloppy. It was just all around terrible. There was no protection from the midfield. Matic is too slow at this point. Pogba barely tackles back or tracks back or even looks like he's bothered half the time. It was atrocious all around. And it's scary from a United point of view because I don't think their deadline day signings of Cavani and Alex Tellez will help that much. Um, Tellez is a great player and should do well as a left back, but... I think they needed center backs. I don't see how Cavani, an aging, injury-prone, expensive striker, is going to help that much. He will add some goals if he can stay fit, but it's not really their issue. The whole team just needs to find some defensive solidity, I think. You have to protect that back four as much as possible, whether that means bringing in players like Fred and McTominay to just hold the midfield, which they tried in the second half. Um, But it was just, it was bad all around. I can't think of a single United player who played well in that game. Yeah, and often when you see a team play with 10 men, you get the sense that everybody is a little more defensive and everybody is trying to find a way to cover more ground yeah it becomes damage limitation at some point right but it didn't really feel that way united seemed to almost willingly leave one person clearly open and somehow spurs whoever that person was were able to take advantage of it almost every time yeah they were just in disarray it was like one person would run towards the ball i mean it reminded me of when you play as children when somebody runs to the ball and then they're clustered around the ball and you realize there's three players wide open on the other side and all respect to Spurs because they played very well, but I couldn't believe how easy United made it look for them. Yeah. What, what did you think of Ole and Solskjaer's response to the game? I think he said all the right things, but he's he's such a sweet man, but he just doesn't... Um, I don't know. I wouldn't be scared of him as a player. I wouldn't feel like my spot was under threat or anything like that the way I would have with Fergie or even Mourinho or Guardiola where you're like, oh, crap, I played terribly and he's scary. Mm-hmm. Solskjaer's so sweet and such a nice man. I just feel like he's more disappointed than angry. I don't think he's the big problem at United, but he's not helping either. And it was uh, it was a little entertaining at the least to see Jose after the game talk about how if, if any team deserved to have VAR go against them, it was United. <laughs> yeah. He always has at least one good line for a press conference, so he was in fine form. Okay, and, and maybe just quickly, uh, you mentioned the transfer deadline day today. Mm-hmm. It's 
clear, no Jaden Sancho. Right. What does that mean? Does it not matter in light of the centre-back issues that we've seen, which, again, now they've, they've run out of time to solve, maybe? Yeah, look, I said it before, Jaden Sancho's a great player, but I don't think he was necessarily the answer for United. I do think they need more depth and he would have helped, you know, at the right on the right wing, but they need to solve their defensive issues first and foremost. He he is what fans were hoping for though. So yes. it'll still be a disappointment. I who knows what'll happen next year, but it kind of feels to me that once the window reopens and all the other global teams are back in the transfer market post COVID, United doesn't feel like his his destination when he does make a move anymore. Yeah, if I were a United fan, I would be disappointed. I'm pretty surprised that they went all summer, you know, claiming he was their top target, seemingly agreeing personal terms with him, having him ready to transfer, and just not paying up, basically. Um, it seems like Dortmund were willing to sell as long as they met the fee, and they just did not. And then to take that money and pay Cavani, I think something like $10 million a year, he has a free transfer, but with a really expensive salary and about $10 million in agents' fees for you know a short-term transfer for a striker who was once great but is injury-prone. And, and as you mentioned, hasn't played in seven months because yep. of the French League being Hasn't played in a while, so he'll take some time to get up to speed. It's It seems like they're putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound at this point. Um, I, yeah, I just i am not sure what their board is really thinking other than you know bringing in a celebrity name. And that would be a concern if I were a United fan. Okay, well, let's see if they can prove us wrong. Yeah, I think they'll pick themselves up from here, but I don't think they're in for a great season. They they and Man City are in the bottom half of the table now, which is, again, it's only four yeah, weeks. That, so I'm sure I don't expect that to last. Itself. And to be fair to them, they've only played three games yeah. each, so they're at a disadvantage just in terms of points available. But yeah, it's a bad start to the season. Yeah. And, and let's move on to the Man City game. I think Leeds versus Manchester City, 1-1 draw, was probably my third most surprising outcome of the weekend, <laughs> if we're doing it in that We order. thought this was going to be the high-scoring yeah, game. Yeah, this was supposed to be the high-scoring <laughs> game. We said seven, and, and there were other games with seven and, yeah. and nine goals in them. Do you think that this game was a worse outcome for Manchester City. Going back to the preview episode, you talked about how they both play very similar styles, but Man City has better players. And you thought that, if I'm going to put you on the spot and quote you, that Manchester City was going to overwhelm Leeds, and they obviously didn't. If you were a Manchester City fan, are you disappointed by this? Not disappointed, because I think it was a pretty fair result, given the performances, but I'd be a little worried about... A, City's injury issues, and B, just kind of their lack of energy and their lack of goal scoring so far this season. And again, it's three games in, but they don't look like the kind of devastating, intimidating Manchester City that we're used to under Guardiola. Um, I think City started really well. They did overwhelm Leeds for about the first 20 minutes. They could have scored two or three. De Bruyne hit the post with a free kick. Sterling did score, I think, after 16 minutes. But Leeds adjusted really well. They, under under Bielsa, just seem like they always believe that they can get back into games. They never seem that intimidated. And he made a couple of adjustments in the second half that worked beautifully. And Leeds came back. Um, now they did equalize through an Ederson error. But they've also hit the crossbar. He made a couple of other fantastic saves. So on the balance, I think 1-1 is fair. Okay. This is Pep's 
last year in his contract. Mm-hmm. It kind of sounds like the baton has passed from Manchester City to Liverpool, <laughs> and I guess we'll see. And I guess now Aston Villa <laughs> uh, and Everton and Everton. We have Please, to, we're, we're yet to get there, but we'll get there. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Do you think that that Pep is tired? Is is ready for a new challenge? Will this be his last year? There's no way for us to know, but. Yeah, do you I can't think read this his is mind. Be his last year at Manchester City. I kind of do, only because it seems like his methods are exhausting for the players. I think he's a really intense man. I think he has more energy than any human being I've ever seen. And I think after a certain point, you could just get exhausted by his coaching. Now they've tried to bring in some new players, and maybe they'll kind of turn things around and provide a new impetus for the rest of the season but just feels like other teams have figured them out a little bit and yeah maybe they just need kind of a fresh approach he's also never spent this long in any single job so i could see him needing a break soon okay let's keep going okay let's talk about leicester versus west ham yes another surprise another surprise i'm sorry west ham i need to apologize i apologize last week it's your turn this week we're so negative about your team. Maybe we should keep being negative because we seem to be mm-hmm. good luck. But but we did say, <laughs> and uh, we were obviously wrong, that Leicester was a more consistent team and yep. that they were going to beat West Ham and, and they lost 3 nothing. Absolutely. So break so, that match down for us. First, I would say David Moyes is a genius working from home mm-hmm. and should probably work from home for the rest of the season. Yeah. Because, wow, they beat Wolves 4-0 last weekend and Leicester 3-0. Clean sheet, seven goals, fantastic performances. I think Mikel Antonio as a center forward is working beautifully. I think he's a menace to play against and is doing a great job up front. And I think they're set up with three at the back and basically working on the counterattack has just been fantastic. And Declan Rice is doing a great job, defensive midfield. Jared Bowen going forward has been fantastic. And they just kind of sat back lured Leicester into their trap and then hit them on the counter and just destroyed them on the counter attack. More broadly than Leicester versus West Ham, why does it feel like some of these top flight teams are so unprepared for the strategy of counterattacking? You go back to, you know, Tottenham versus Southampton a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. Aston Villa, Liverpool we just talked about. It seems like a lot of these really good teams that play maybe a high line are much more vulnerable to these fast counterattacks than you would expect them to be given their quality. Yeah, I mean, it's a risky style to play with a high line. The advantage is that you basically suffocate the opposite team and force them back and press them back into their half. And then if you can intercept the ball or force them into a mistake, you're you're right on them and it's much easier to score. That's the idea of it. But yes, you're susceptible to a long ball over the top or very quick interplay and they get behind your high line. Um, it's kind of the fashionable style to play right now. It is risky and you kind of take that risk that you might give up one or two chances per game by playing that style. But teams are catching on to it, hitting balls over the top. There are a lot of very fast forwards in the Premier League. And there's also, I think, a kind of a pride thing where the so-called bigger teams all want to play what they you know, kind of proudly say is this attacking style of football and front mm-hmm. forward 
football and every young manager now says I want to play attacking football, which essentially means lots of possession, pressing from the front, high line. But first of all, not every team can be great at that style. And second, there's still something to be said for just launching it and running and getting in behind them. And teams aren't really preparing for that anymore. Yeah, it, it feels like, and it's, again, it's only early, but it feels like that strategy has been more disruptive this season than last. I'm just speculating, but I wonder if, and I haven't looked at the stats, but I wonder if some of the strikers and some of the wingers that are central to these counterattacks are just more accurate at shooting than they used to be. One of the funny articles that I read around coronavirus about the Bundesliga coming back from the restart was that all these strikers were just at home practicing shooting <laughs> and the and shot accuracy post-coronavirus was significantly higher than pre. That is interesting. So I, wow. I, wonder, I wonder if it's, it's kind of the same strategy and it's just easier to score from it now. Yeah, I also think the biggest thing to suffer when you have no preseason is, well, two things are fitness and defensive organization. Strikers don't forget how to score over a break, but four defenders will kind of lose their organization and their cohesion if they can't drill together on the field every day in practice. Yeah, that's a good, that's that seems like it's much more impactful than my strategy. I don't. I, I think they can both be true, not mutually exclusive. Um, but I would think a lot of these managers are probably dying to get their players to actually in training and just working on defensive setup and tactical drills and things, but there really hasn't been much time with virtually no preseason, League Cup, now international break again. It's really difficult to get that organization. Yeah, and so I wonder how long it'll take for these teams to really start looking like themselves almost. And yeah. it'll be good for some and, and clearly bad for others. Yeah, and it's going to be a really, really fun season. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's shaping up to be. Lots of goals. In line with that theme, let's keep going. The next one that deserves recognition Everton 4, Brighton 2. Top of the table, unbeaten Everton. At the very top of the table. That's right. Yeah, they've been awesome. Four games, four wins in the Premier League. They haven't been beaten in other competitions yet either. Nope. Carlo Ancelotti doing a fantastic job. And it's more than just the new midfield trio. Yes. A couple of them have been out. Mm -hmm. and we wondered what Alan the was out this weekend, be. yeah. And Andre Gomez. Obviously, James Rodriguez has been playing really well. Mm -hmm. Calvert-Lewin has emerged into a much better striker than I think most people expected. Yeah, he's been on fire. Is that all attributable to Carlo Ancelotti? I think most of it is, yeah. I think their recruitment has been good. He's certainly been a draw to bring in some of these better players like James. He's done wonders with Calvert-Lewin, who seems to have just so much confidence right now. And they just look like they're flying. Um, the one concern, I guess, would be Jordan Pickford and the goal. He still is good for an error or two per game. Um, but if they keep scoring like this, they just look fantastic. The Merseyside Derby's the next game after the international break, Liverpool and Everton. I can't wait. I think it's going to be an that'll amazing be, game. And that's the first game back yep. on that weekend too. Yep. That'll be fun. So I'm Liverpool sure will be, be trying to respond to their loss and Everton will be trying to remain unbeaten. So it's going to be a big game. Is it too early to speculate on whether Everton will actually make the top four? Are they... Are they shaping? Are they on that trajectory? Do they look that good? I think you can certainly speculate. I well, can you speculate? <laughs> sure. Yeah, I think they have a chance. I would be concerned about just injuries. I would be concerned about fatigue. They're playing a really energetic style right now. They're flying. They haven't been really challenged yet. Um, 
And so, you know, they can only beat what's in front of them, but they haven't been challenged that much yet. I would be t tempted to say we'll know more after we see them play Liverpool, but so far they look good. If they keep playing like this, there's no reason why they shouldn't be aiming for top four. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's move on to the remaining fixtures chronologically. Okay. Chelsea versus Crystal Palace. Yes. This is one I think you've probably, probably been waiting to talk about. 4-0 <laughs> win for Chelsea. Mm-hmm. Fantastic performance from Chilwell. Yes. His first full Premier League start and game as a Chelsea player. Yep. Man of the match for Chilwell. Man of the match for Chilwell. A goal for Zuma. Mm-hmm. And two penalties for Jorginho. Yep. No goals for Crystal Palace. Yes. Perhaps most importantly, a clean sheet for Chelsea. What do you put that down to? Well, I will say that Crystal Palace did not offer a lot going forward. However, I think... You can attribute some of that to Chelsea's defense. Zuma and Silva look like a pretty good pair together. Um, Thiago Silva's positioning is so good. There were a few times when it looked like he'd be beaten for pace on a through ball, and he just kind of adjusted his position and was able to cut it out before it became a problem. Chilwell was fantastic. He was great going forward. All of his set pieces were really good. He scored. He assisted for Zuma, but he also did sprinted back and was able to defend pretty well, which sounds like the bare minimum you'd want from your left back, but it's been a problem position now for several years. It was, you know, awful to watch Alonso jog back into position over and over again. And I like Alonso, but just seeing Joel able to get up and down the left side and actually provide an attacking threat and defensive solidity was a huge upgrade. Um, and they looked really solid defensively. They look comfortable with Mendy in goal. He didn't have much to do, but he handles everything so far well. Um, yeah, so it was a good clean sheet for Chelsea, and they've now only conceded five goals this season. So while the Chelsea defense has been much maligned, they're way ahead of teams like now Liverpool, who have conceded, I think, 11. Yeah. Um, so not bad. And no. maybe rumors of their demise were exaggerated. Yeah, maybe it was just going to take some time, like you always said. Yeah, and I think it will still take some time for us to see the best of Werner and Havertz. They're still adjusting. Werner's playing on the left where he doesn't look as comfortable as he does through the middle. Pulisic came on for about a 10-minute cameo at the end, and I think now he'll play on the left and Werner can be through the middle, and we'll see a little bit more of him as an attacking threat. Um, Hudson-Odoi started on the right, looked very good. So I think it's coming together for Chelsea, and I think people just needed to be a little bit more patient. Okay. Crystal Palace, I think, will be fine. They didn't offer much going forward. They made a few defensive errors that let Chelsea in, including giving away the two penalties at the end. But they're a pretty well-organized team. They made it very difficult in the first half when it was still scoreless. So they're very good. They'll be fine. Okay. And let's, let's talk about players generally. Mm -hmm. Transfer window ended today. Yep. Zaha hasn't gone anywhere. Nope. He's not going to be going away. No. He'll stay. He looks... Happier. I think he's enjoying having Eze and Ayu up front with him, take a little bit of the focus off of him. And I think he has kind of priced himself out of a move. So he's he's staying at Crystal Palace. Until this time next year. Yes. Or right. January. We'll or see. January. Right. <laughs> uh, Chelsea, there's been a lot of movement in, not quite as much movement out. Mm -hmm. You know, Ruben Loftus Cheek has gone on alone to Fulham. Yep. Ross Barkley, as you said earlier, on a loan to Aston Villa. Mm -hmm. 
there was speculation that maybe Jorginho, maybe Alonso you talked about, maybe Emerson could be moved offshore perhaps overseas. <laughs> they haven't gone anywhere. Nope. Touch on that, their place in the team, how you think they're going to be used. And then if you think it even is worth mentioning, look like there might have been a little bit of friction on the field between Tammy Abraham and Jorginho. Jorginho is the designated penalty taker. Tammy Abraham wanted to take the second penalty. Is there anything to that? All of those topics, what are your thoughts? No, I don't think that's a huge deal. I think Tammy Abraham is a young striker. He wants to score. Jorginho already got to take one penalty. I think he just thought, let me have the second one. As Piliqueta rightly just pulled him away and said, no, Jorginho is the designated taker. I don't think that's a big deal. They were kind of laughing. Frank Lampard was kind of laughing about it after the fact. Said he was put in his place. Um, I don't have an issue with a striker being eager to score. I think that's good. I also don't have an issue with the captain saying, no, go away. (laughs) So I don't think that's a big deal at all. They seem fine. So it's, yeah, I think that was overblown. Um, I think it's been difficult to sell kind of unwanted players in this market. Loans are kind of the best you can hope for. So I think players like Emerson, Alonso, Rudiger, they're just going to have to kind of hang out until maybe January. Ruben Loftus-Cheek, I think that's a good move in that he just needs to be playing regularly. He had that horrific Achilles injury and has worked really hard to come back, but just looks a little bit off the pace. I just think he needs regular games starting every week to just get back up to speed, feel confident in his fitness again. Um, He'll play every week at Fulham. I don't think there's any danger of him leaving permanently. Everyone at Chelsea seems to want him back, just fit and ready to play, so... I think it's a decent move. And then Barkley, I think kind of the same thing. I think if anyone were to leave permanently, it would be Barkley. But yeah, the players who aren't able to leave, like Rudiger and Alonso and Emerson, I think they're going to be kind of just backup options. There are enough games that they'll get some game time. I mean, Joel won't play every single game at left back, so Alonso and Emerson will fill in. But they're definitely not going to be first choices, and I think it'll be frustrating for them until January or next summer. Yeah. And, and January is not that far away. It was, it's funny to remind me of the other day. You always think about the second transfer window is the second half of the season, but January is in, in just over two months almost. Yeah. So I think it's something like 10 weeks away. Yeah, so, so. so we're going to be back here sooner than we think. Yep. So I wouldn't be surprised to see some of them work on going on loan in January, but until then they're going to have to sit tight. And I guess just to be complete, we should just mention, obviously, no Declan Rice to Chelsea at this point. No, that was dependent on selling players and they just never did that. So didn't have the funds available. And I think West Ham were pretty determined to hang on to him. A defensive midfielder is still necessary, but I think Chelsea have the talent to fill in there until you maybe get your first choice if he is Lampard's first choice in that position. But in the meantime, expect a, a range of formations, perhaps in a range of sort of plugging and playing different players in mm-hmm. different positions. Yeah. All right. Let's go straight to Wolves Fulham since you started talking about Ruben Locks' cheek. One nothing victory for Wolves. Yep. Actually a pretty closely contested game. Yeah, it wasn't incredibly eventful. Fulham missed a few good chances at the end to equalize. Wolves took their chance very nicely through Neto and they looked like the better team, but they didn't quite look like, you know, the dangerous Wolves we're used to. It's a pretty underwhelming game, but they got the three points, and that's what matters. Okay. And elsewhere, there were three other fixtures this weekend. 
Newcastle beat Burnley 3-1. Southampton beat West Brom 2-0. And Arsenal beat Sheffield United 2-1 with Arsenal fans finally seeing the real William and beginning to complain. <laughs> Do those three as a group. Is there anything you want to point out about any of those games? That's a little unfair, but I do find it funny that, you know, after the first week, William looked like a world beater, and now he's been a little bit more inconsistent. I still think he'll be a good signing for Arsenal, but it's more like the inconsistent William we saw at Chelsea. I worry a little bit about Arsenal's creativity. They didn't get Awar, who was kind of their top target from Leon this summer. I think that will be a little bit of an issue because this was kind of a stodgy performance until Pepe came on. But they did get, just today, Thomas Partey from Atletico. So he'll help kind of shore up the midfield, protect the defense. It's a good signing. It was a good win for Arsenal. I worry more about Sheffield United, who are still pointless. I think they've only scored one goal. They just look kind of bereft of ideas, and their defense doesn't look anywhere near as solid as it used to. So I think they need to kind of come up with something fast. Burnley, I also am a bit concerned about. They still don't have their defense sorted. They have a couple important players out injured. They're not scoring a ton. So if this continues, I think Burnley could kind of struggle this season. Um, Sean Dyche has done an amazing job on a relatively low budget with a relatively small squad, but it kind of feels like it's starting to catch up to them. And they didn't bring anybody in today, so... It could be an issue. Um, Southampton, West Brom, it was a good win for Southampton, but nothing too notable in that one. West Brom's defensive issues continue. Southampton scored a couple of nice goals, but it was it was a relatively straightforward one. Okay. That about covers it. It was an incredible week of games. Crazy weekend. Now we have nearly two weeks to recuperate because all of these teams are off, off to international break for mm-hmm. many of the players. Yep, another international break. So we will be back next week to preview match week five. Okay, see you next Friday. Thank you. Bye. If you enjoyed our show, subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter at NutmegPod or our website, nutmegpodcast.com. Please rate and review the show to help other listeners find us. Cheers.